I'm sure you can hear the bit of Scottish in Ross's voice because he's got a Scottish mother. If you are new to this church, I should just assure you that there are some English people who do come to this church, um, even some who actually come from Plymouth itself, but all are welcome. So sorry, a plethora of Scottish accents tonight. We are in a series on Luke's Gospel, and maybe some of you have been coming along for a few weeks and you've been going through it. Maybe some of you are brand new, you've just come back to to Plymouth, you've just come to Plymouth for the first time, and you're coming into the middle of this series. We've called it The Investigation. Luke has written an account, he tells us right in the first few verses of Luke, He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So we are going through different passages in Luke's gospel, looking at the things that Luke particularly wanted to teach those people who were new followers of Jesus. And today we are going further through this. Don't know which number we're at, but anyway, we're going to split the reading into two different bits because I don't know if you've ever thought particularly about teaching styles. Maybe if you have come just to Plymouth to come to university and you're just starting here, you've been used to the way in which you've been taught at school. And maybe as you've gone through school, you've been allowed a bit more to be studying yourself and trying to work out your own thoughts. And then you're going to get to university and there'll be some lectures that you'll go to and somebody at the front in maybe quite a large lecture theatre will be talking and giving you their ideas on a subject. Maybe you'll then discover that you've also got tutorials or seminars. Maybe you'd get together in groups and you discuss things. Well, that's one way of learning. But how does that compare maybe as to how you learnt when you were growing up at home, the ways in which your parents taught you How did you learn things like which side to put your knife and fork? I totally failed with that with my son and my family. But, um, you know, all these other things, good manners, how to be considerate for other people, all these things that you've learned from your parents in different types of ways. And Jesus had different ways in which he taught people. On occasions, he did stand and taught to a large group of people, as we know in the the Sermon of the Mount. But other times, he was teaching his disciples, his followers, who were living with him. They were traveling with him to all the different places he went to. Sometimes they'd just be walking through a cornfield, and Jesus would suddenly stop and say, hey, look, see that seed here? Now, see this mustard seed? They would tell something about that. Sometimes something would happen And he'd use that as a teaching opportunity. The mother of James and John comes along and says, can you put my sons either side of me in the kingdom of God? And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach them about how things are in the kingdom. So we've got some different experiences of Jesus teaching today because we have got what I would maybe call another of these life-on-life experiences for Jesus. 
But the first one happens because he has an encounter with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees have maybe heard him preaching different places. Maybe they heard the Sermon on the Mount. They'll have been aware that Jesus talks a fair bit about the kingdom of God. And they, as Jewish leaders, they also talked about the kingdom of God. They were teaching and waiting for the Messiah to come when the kingdom of God would come. So they are going to ask Jesus a bit about this. Now, in some occasions, the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. I have a feeling that in this particular occasion, they weren't trying to trip Jesus up. They were genuinely interested in what he had to say. So our reading, if you want to open the Bible, we'll maybe refer back to it a fair bit as we go through this evening. So page 1044, and we're going to read the first two verses just now from Luke 17, sorry, not the first, verse 20 and 21. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So we're going to spend a few minutes just looking at this first question and how Jesus answered it. When will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus responded with three fairly clear points. First of all, he said, actually, the kingdom of God is already here now. Now, it's not something that you're going to be able to point to. So, if we wanted to point to a kingdom, I'm trying to think as to actually what we would call kingdoms. I think Saudi Arabia has a king. So, let's say we could point to that country over there. That is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Maybe some people would point to us and say, that's the kingdom, the United Kingdom, a place where you could actually point to and say, that's that people. Of course, in the Jewish days, and particularly the Romans, they were going round and making their kingdom larger all the time. They were taking over new territories. You would see the advance of the kingdom, or as eventually became the empire of Rome. But Jesus says, it is here, but you can't see it, you can't point to it, and maybe that's why you Pharisees are missing it. But actually, this kingdom is right here in your midst. Some translations maybe say, in your grasp. So what did Jesus mean about that? Now, I have spoken here a few times, and I seem to keep on having the subject of the kingdom of God. don't exactly know why that should be. If you have heard me preach on the kingdom of God before, this will be a recap. And if you haven't, then hopefully this is the abbreviated version. So what is a kingdom? So a kingdom, Dallas Willard says, is the extent of your effective will. So in other words, for me, I have a kingdom over myself. I am in charge of what I do, what I say. If I say, put my hand on my head and I do that, then I do. 
If I decide what to say, I'm in control of myself. That is my kingdom. But there may be larger kingdoms. I may have some control, certainly when they were younger, over my children. I say, come now for dinner. Clear up the table. Put the stuff in the dishwasher. And they do what I say. I have control over them. In certain areas, if you live in work in the army, then undoubtedly you will have somebody who's in control of you, or you may be the person that's in control of them. That's the captain of the squadron, or what this is all getting technical of me. Um, then you're in charge of that, that group of people. Maybe if you're the teacher in the class, you're in charge of them. That is your little kingdom. So when we come to the kingdom of God, we're talking about the place where God's will happens. Where God's will happens. The way that God wants things to be, that's the way that they are. So, of course, Jesus himself was a great example of that because he always did his Father's will. So, he absolutely was in the kingdom of God because he always did what God would have him do. As I commit myself to following Jesus, then I live in the kingdom of God. I am one of his subjects. I'm hoping and praying and working for his will to be put into practice in my life. So when Jesus says to these Pharisees, the kingdom of God is here among you, he certainly was talking about himself, but he was maybe also saying for his followers who had committed themselves to following Jesus, that they too were in the kingdom. And maybe he was actually even saying to these Pharisees, actually, it's possible for you too to live in this kingdom. You can choose to put God's will as top in your life and what you do, and then you will be living in the kingdom of God. This is a kingdom that is present here and growing so that is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in this very first bit. But as I said, Jesus often then used examples in order to teach further. Jesus had taught many times about the kingdom of God. Loads of references to that in the Sermon on the Mount and in the parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of God is like that. He was always teaching to his disciples about the kingdom of God. So this time, he's going to teach them another thing, a next stage. So we'll go on and look at the rest of our passage for this evening. Probably better in front of me. Okay, so then he said to his disciples, so we'll change from the Pharisees to disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. 
People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken, and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Maybe Jesus kind of felt the Pharisees were asking, when is the kingdom going to come? In other words, when is the Messiah going to come and bring his kingdom and rescue us from the Romans? When is God going to be so apparent in this place that we will all feel that we are on the victory side? So with maybe that thought in mind, Jesus is then addressing his disciples to tell them, yes, there will be a day. The kingdom may be here now, but there is also going to be a day when the kingdom will come and it will be so obvious to all. It will not be hidden. So Luke has given us, or Jesus particularly speaking, has given us some clues as to what this is going to be like. And for most of them, for us, it's still guesswork. Because there is only one of these clues that has actually already come to pass. So let's have a look and see what these actual clues are. If you want to have your passage open, that might help you. So firstly, he says, many are going to say that they see the Messiah, that they've seen the Messiah. They're going to say, he's over there. And we can all go. And Jesus says, no, don't worry about that. Interestingly, just in BBC News in this past week, there was an article of somebody who has taken photos of loads of people who think that they are, or proclaiming that they are the Messiah returned. This person is one of them with his group of followers. I haven't heard of him before. So because I haven't heard of him before, I can actually be fairly sure from what Jesus says that he isn't the Messiah who's returned. So Jesus says, don't try to follow these other people that maybe say or others might say he he might be the Messiah. He's not. Because, clue number two, when the Messiah comes, it will be like lightning. We've had a fair number of lightning storms in Plymouth in, in recent months, I think. And certainly when I was on holiday in France, we actually had some for about three nights running. And it, these were actually quite interesting lightning storms because, yes, they lit up the whole sky, but we didn't even hear any thunder. Now, that would suggest to me that it must have been so, so, so far away we couldn't even hear the noise because I believe that if you see lightning, there's always thunder. 
That's why I was told at school. Maybe that's not correct. However, the lightning threw up the whole of the sky. Now, we have a huge fireworks um, festival here, a competition in the summer, don't we? And the fireworks are spectacular. And I can just about manage to see the higher ones from, from my house. But fireworks, they are nothing compared to lightning in the sky, are they? When lightning flashes, it is just everywhere. Now, it may be really quick, but it's just everywhere. We all know. And Jesus says when he returns, we will all know because it will be like lightning in the sky. And then we have the third clue, the one which we do know what that means. He says, but before this happens, the Son of Man will suffer and be rejected. And just shortly after he's been speaking to his disciples about this, Jesus is rejected by the Pharisees, by the Jews in that place, and was suffered and put to death on the cross. So the one out of the seven clues I have here, one has come to pass, the rest have not. So what else does Jesus say it's going to be like? Well, he says it is going to be a huge surprise that we will all be living our normal life. Now, my next photo, I hope this isn't too sensitive to you, was an incident of when something comes and interrupts you in normal life. I'm afraid this is a photo of the crash in the M5 where that lorry went across the central reservation. I'm sure probably most of you can sort of imagine what it must be to be driving up a motorway and then just like that it all changes jesus is saying the same through the story of noah that when the flood came everybody had ignored noah and they were still eating drinking working getting married having babies you name it it was all happening and then the flood came and they hadn't paid any attention now, I suggest that probably most of you know the story of, of Noah, but if you don't, you can find it in Genesis chapter 6. But then, his next one is, there's no time to take any action, but if you try to take action, then you will lose your life. So that's clue number five. And he then refers to Lot, and Lot's story may not be quite so well known to you, but it's in Genesis chapter 18. And Lot was a nephew of Abraham, and he'd gone to live in a city in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it turned out to be a really evil place. And in that place, God then said he was going to rescue Lot before he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Luke, sorry, Luke, Lot was allowed to go and get his family and they started escaping and the angel said, you've got to run, you've got to run. And then Lot's wife, I don't know, did she think, oh, I've left the dog trapped in. I don't know what she thought. She stopped. She looked back. She didn't keep on running as though her life depended on it. And she was turned into a pillar of salt slightly kind of maybe reminds me of Pompeii 
and the eruption of the Vesuvius. And I don't know if you've ever been there or just read about it, but you can see all these people who were just going about their normal daily lives and have been sort of captured in stone by the, the lava coming, coming down from the mountain. There is no time to try to take action. And if you try to save yourself, it won't work. It reminds me a bit of Jesus saying that we m- must deny ourselves and carry our cross, that his life is about this self-sacrifice and that it's as we give ourselves over and sacrifice ourselves to Christ, that that is what saves our life. And then on to number six. If I could have the next slide, James, that would be great. Thank you. Uh, Some will be taken and others will be left. He talks about two people being asleep in the one bed. One goes, the other stays there. Two women in a field, one's taken, one goes. So while normal life is still happening, people will be taken at the time that the Son of Man returns. So then the disciples say, how will we know about this? Where's it going to happen? And Jesus answers them that where there's a corpse, they will, vultures will hover. In other words, that it will be very obvious that this has happened. There will be a stench of death. So that's the seven clues that Jesus has given to what the return of the Son of Man is going to be like. As a bit of a recap for this, we're going to watch a slightly more lightweight clip. And I would like the people who are on this side of the church, as you watch this clip, I'd like you to think for things that you see in this clip that are similar to some of the things that we've been talking about. And the people who are on this side, I'd like you as you watch to be thinking of things that are not similar, that are different to what we've been talking about. So let's hope that this will play. Okay, so the people on this side, any contributions? This is what is similar in Ethan Almighty to what we've been talking about. Okay, did they have any time to take action? I don't know. Come back to that. Okay, it was certainly a surprise to most of them. Yep. So is that similar? Yeah. Okay. Similar to lot, yeah? Okay. Or let's wife. Yeah. Any other thoughts as what was similar? Sorry, I didn't quite hear that. It will be dramatic, yeah, very dramatic. Everybody, certainly in that locality, was certainly well aware of it. Okay, what about and of course 
a fairly major sort of similarities. I think heaven almighty is meant to be a bit like Noah, which obviously we did talk about. Okay, so this side, what is dissimilar to what we've been talking about? <laughs> Sorry, say that again, Steve. He only saved the Americans. Okay. Well, actually, I think he saved stacks and stacks and stacks, didn't he? Anything else dissimilar? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody was saved. That's probably the biggest difference between the story of Noah, isn't it? Because actually, the story of Noah, I'm afraid, is not dreadfully nice. Actually, all these people who ended up getting in the ark were actually should have been on the ground and washed away by the flood. So, quite different. I was thinking as to why, as to what was actually a good thing to, to say about this. And let's go on to maybe what did Jesus mean when he was talking about, about this matter. So what was Jesus' intention by telling the disciples this? It's interesting. I think that the disciples were not concerned. And I don't think Jesus had any intention of making the disciples afraid. He, he wasn't trying to make them fearful about what was happening. He was telling them, this is what it's going to be like, and this is almost, this is a good thing. I suppose similar to the way in which God told Noah, there's going to be the flood, but you're going to, to, build, to build an ark. You're going to, to be okay. So I don't think there was any suggestion from the disciples that this was going to be a bad thing. And indeed, if we go further on, into the, the New Testament, we'll discover that to be a Christian in those days, and probably Theophilus, maybe that Luke was writing to, were well aware that to be a Christian meant that you could well be sent in to face the lions, and that that was a normal thing that was happening to Christians. To be a Christian in those days was not easy, it wasn't nice, and so therefore to them, to look for the fact that Jesus was going to return in glory, he was going to save them. This was something to be anticipated. It was going to be their get-out-of-jail card free. So when we hear the stories of one will be taken and one left behind, the good thing is to be taken. So when I was thinking about all the clips, you know, loads of things that I could have shown. I looked at different clips, you know, San Andreas, and we've got tsunamis coming, and then there's Armageddon, and there's asteroids going to hit the world, there, there's volcanoes, there was Pompeii that I mentioned. You know, I could find 101 things, and then, of course, there's a whole series of um, books and videos on Left Behind, and I could have shown you things like that. When I was younger, when I was a teenager, this kind of thing was talked about quite a lot in church. There were songs, there were films. We were all considered, are you ready for the kingdom of God to come? Are you ready for Jesus to, to come back, to return? And there was a kind of a fear side of things. 
But I think from this passage, Jesus was not trying to make them afraid at all, which is why I chose Evan Almighty, which was far more um, light-hearted, while not true to the story of Noah, actually does show that everybody was, was rescued, because that is what Jesus offers us. He does say to be rescued, to be safe, is a possibility, if you have made the right choices beforehand. So I wonder how you react to this. Maybe you haven't even heard that Jesus is coming back again. Maybe you are aware that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, that we aim to follow him, we, that Jesus died for us, etc. But you actually haven't quite registered that every time we celebrate communion, we're saying we do this until Christ returns again. We've maybe lost some of that anticipation that these early Christians had, who sincerely expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. And because we're now 2,000 years later, maybe we've started to stop thinking that Jesus is returning. But Jesus is quite clear that he is coming back. So I don't know how that makes you feel. Does it make you feel hugely relieved that you've got this get out of jail card, that it's all going to be great in the end, and that there will be a time that the kingdom of God, of which you are a part, that you will be able to worship God without anybody kind of interfering or trying to pull you to pieces for it, that there will be a day in which you're on the victor's side. Maybe that fills you with great anticipation, and I'm sure that that is what Jesus intends. Or maybe you're here thinking, hmm, left behind. Am I in the kingdom of God? What does that mean for me? And maybe if you're thinking about that, then come to the front and speak to somebody about that later. Come along to the Alpha course tomorrow at seven o'clock. Exactly the type of event for people to ask the questions, work out what does that mean, and we can explore these things together. Or maybe it's just making you think, actually, maybe I know that I'm going to be safe, but maybe my husband, wife, children, friends, actually I'm not sure that they're going to be. Maybe it's going to spur you on with some more urgency to tell your friends, to maybe give that invite to them to come along to, to Alpha. Because there is a day where Jesus will return and everyone will know that he has returned and is king of this place. Let's just take a minute of quiet. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are coming back. That for those of us who are already in the kingdom of God, that is a great thing to look forward to. Father, forgive us if we have got complacent about that. Father, we pray that for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, that we also realize that there is an onus on us, like there was an onus on Noah to tell the people there that they needed to get themselves safe. And Father, we ask that nobody will leave this place troubled tonight by what they've heard. 
but that they will take the opportunity to speak to others. That they will be able to get themselves to a place where, by putting their trust in you, that they too will know that their future is safe and secure. <coughs> Father, we ask that you would be with our, us in our thoughts this evening as maybe we process these different things, that you would answer the questions and doubts that we might still have, that you would help us to process them and think them through with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.